You're listening to the Florida Bar Podcast, brought to you by the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center, Legal Fuel, produced by the broadcast professionals of the Florida Bar. Welcome to the Florida Bar's Legal Fuel Podcast, brought to you by the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. We're so glad you're joining us. This is Christine Bilbury. I'm a senior practice management advisor at the Bar and one of the hosts of the show, which is being recorded from our home offices in Tallahassee, Florida. And I'm Carla Eckhart. I'm a practice management advisor at the Florida Bar and a co-host of today's podcast. Our goal at the Practice Resource Center is to assist Florida attorneys with running the business side of their law practices. We focus on a different topic each month and carry the theme through our website with related tips, videos, and articles. Today, practicing law requires a lot more technology know-how than in the past. Back in 2016, the Florida Supreme Court increased the number of mandatory CLE hours to include three in technology. We know that members are taking advantage of our large library of free CLE courses to get technology credit, but some lawyers have still successfully avoided having to actually use legal technology, either by having support staff members deal with it or by being um, very dependent on an IT specialist. But after the pandemic hit, many attorneys were on their own working from home and realized, perhaps for the first time, that they needed to learn a little bit about technology. Um, And too often, lawyers avoid asking questions because they assume that everyone else knows the answer. So today, we want to go over some common technology issues. And if we don't get to your question, please call us. You don't even have to tell us your name. Um, So I'm going to kick it off with something very basic. Carla, how do I make sure my laptop is encrypted? And the reason that I start with this is because we do have the safe harbor issue that if your laptop is, you leave it in a Uber or on a plane, you don't have to do that mandatory client notification if you have encrypted your laptop. So there's, it's kind of twofold right. um, protecting your clients. So what do right. I do? Encrypted data is uh, um, sort of excluded from uh, data breach notification laws, at least the Florida data breach notification laws. And, and we'll go over that in, in a little more detail in a minute. But device encryption is precisely that. It encrypts data. But device encryption uh, encrypts the data so long as it's stored on the device and it only protects it from unauthorized access. So if you give someone your laptop login, the drive or disk is now unencrypted and they have access. So Never give someone your login password. Create other users should have separate profiles with their own logins um, that do not coincide with yours. And essentially to to check this, it's pretty simple. You usually go into your settings and and there's no need to memorize this or write it down. We'll include a link uh, for our listeners with the step-by-step instructions on how to check. But if you have a PC and you have a supported device, uh, you either have encryption or device encryption or standard BitLocker or both. And device encryption is available on all Windows 10 editions and BitLocker is only available for Windows 10 Pro, Enterprise, or Education. So if you have Windows Home, you're kind of out of luck. There are some workarounds. And again, it has to be a supported device, which again, if we want to get a little technical for Windows 10, means that the device comes with a trusted platform module, TPM for short. That TPM module must be enabled. And it should also come with what's called a unified extensible firmware interface, UEFI for short. So if you're buying a new computer, look for those specs. Um, As far as how to confirm whether or not it is available to you, you select the start button, select settings, update and security, device encryption. If device encryption is available to you, you can enable it there and 
fix the settings there. If it doesn't appear there, then it isn't available, but you may still be able to turn on BitLocker encryption. And to search for that, you again select the Start button under Windows System, select Control Panel. In the Control Panel, you select System and Security. And then under BitLocker Drive Encryption, you select Manage BitLocker. So fairly simple. Again, we'll include a link below with uh, more detailed instructions on how to check if that's available to you. But if it is, and what enable about it. If it's not available, sure. And can I ask you, if I have an Apple device, is it accurate to say that if I've set a password for my Apple device, it's going to encrypt? Yes and no. So File Vault is the encryption software or program that comes sort of out of the box with your Apple computers, and it's available for all Apple computers. So there's sort of less of a tiered system like with Windows PCs where you kind of have to look more into it. If you buy a Mac laptop, whether it's a laptop or a desktop, you have File Vault. Um, and in order to enable that, you go to your system preferences, security and privacy, click File Vault, enable it. Part of enabling File Vault will require you to set up a username and password to log into your profile. And every user on that device has a different profile and will require, you know, a separate setup. Um, but all in all, whenever you enable encryption on any device, whether it's a PC or a Mac, you're going to have to set up some kind of login password. And again, as with any other password, don't set that login password to 12345 or, you know, something. Or preferably use a passphrase, uh, which have been proven Mm -hmm. to be much more complex and, and less likely to be uh, hacked or figured out. Um, but again, uh, if, if you don't have encryption enabled, go ahead and enable it uh, because it, it, it would be one, excluded from any, any data breach notification laws. And, and two, it, it's just a simple, easy, out-of-the-box way to protect client data. Now, again, important to note, device encryption only protects the data while it is being stored on your device So at rest, Uh, if you at any point move that data, so if you attach it to an email, you need a different level of encryption in order to properly keep that file encrypted because otherwise it it just won't be encrypted for the recipient. Um, So again, device encryption, we're only talking about while it is on your device. Okay. And let's talk about another aspect of that because we've gotten this call several times. You must have a password on your, if you have client files on your computer, you've got to have a password because otherwise you're not doing due diligence. But we get the calls of the people, everyone has so many passwords nowadays where they don't remember their password and they can't get into their (laughs) laptop. So what can you do if you know you are a person prone to that? If that pops up for you, what do you do? So officially, the recommendation would be to have something like a password manager. Uh, You have this on a lot of devices sort of out of the box. So if you have an iPhone or a Mac, you know, when you're logging into a a website or or any kind of software program, a pop-up comes up that asks you if you want to save the username and password. That's sort of standard built in. There are third-party password managers that you can uh, automatically save uh, login information for you. And you can also manually input login information. So I would recommend that you, if you are a forgetful person and you have a million different passwords, which you should try and have different passwords for different things, you shouldn't have the same password across the board, um, then you should have a password manager. Uh, You know, I don't recommend that you write it down and keep it in your desk drawer. That's uh, not the official uh, password manager (laughs) 
you know, best under, practice. Under the keyboard. No one will find it under your keyboard. <laughs> right, right. So my recommendation would be to have a password manager. Um, but okay. two, what you want to do for PC or for Mac is to make sure that your recovery keys or whatever they call it, uh, it's usually recovery something, are stored in your Microsoft account or in your iCloud account. So you have the option when you're enabling encryption and setting passwords on your on your device, when you're setting up your device, to save those recovery keys to your account as opposed to saving them, you know, yourself on a disk drive, on a separate disk mm -hmm. drive or writing them down or taking a screenshot of them, which you will invariably lose or forget. Uh, so Option one, have a password manager manually input your login information or your recovery keys or to save those to the cloud while you're setting up. Okay, so you mentioned the cloud because if you've stored your recovery key in your uh, Microsoft or your iCloud account, that's in the cloud. And that still makes some people nervous. So let's talk about very basically what is the cloud and is it safe for me to store my client files on it? Right. So so the cloud is sort of a catch-all term that is used to describe any number of frameworks, infrastructure, services, applications, so on and so forth. But I will use Microsoft's uh, definition uh, for purposes of this podcast because I think it's quite clear for me at least. <laughs> so if you have any questions, we have a ton of resources on this and we'll include them below. But anyway, Microsoft describes the cloud as a term used to describe a global network of servers, each with a unique function. The cloud is not a physical entity, but instead is a vast network of remote servers around the globe, which are hooked together and meant to operate as a single ecosystem. These servers are designed to either store and manage data, run applications, or deliver content or services such as streaming videos, webmail, office productivity software, or social media. Instead of accessing files and data from a local or personal computer, you're accessing them online from an internet-capable device. The information will be available anywhere you go and anytime you need it. Uh, so I think that pretty much sums it up. And, and we all use the cloud almost every day. Unless you have mm -hmm. an air-gapped computer that's never been hooked up to the internet, you've likely used the cloud uh, in one form or another, whether you're accessing your Netflix account, your Office 365 email and calendar. You know, there, there are any number of services that we use day in and day out that access the cloud. As for whether it is safe for attorneys to use, the short answer is yes, lawyers can use the cloud. Uh, Ethics Opinion 12-3 states that lawyers may use cloud computing if they take reasonable precautions to ensure that confidentiality of client information is maintained, that the service provider maintains adequate security, and that the lawyer has adequate access to the information stored remotely. The lawyer should research the service provider to be used. So, in short, yes, you can use it, but you must take reasonable precautions. You can't just, you know, throw your hands up and say, well, it's it's in the cloud now. It's not up to me. No, you, you need to do your due diligence and make sure that you're using a reputable service provider and that you, you sort of meet the very basic standards, that it's not very complicated. Uh, and, and just a little research, which again, we'll include below, will we'll show that, again, it's, it's, it's a matter of just making sure that you do everything you can to keep client data safe um, and that the cloud provider does, in fact, offer the minimum level of security, mm -hmm. which most major even, brands do. Yeah. yeah. 
The Florida Bar's Technology Committee put together some really good resources that we have on LegalFuel.com about if you don't know the right questions to ask because right. you're not tech savvy. Um, so those are easy to find and we'll, right. we'll post we'll link that. to them. There are due diligence yeah. considerations for lawyers evaluating cloud computing service providers. And then there's a companion quick start guide start on guide. cloud computing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those include all of the sort of basic uh, topics that you should cover uh, with your cloud service provider, like physical environmental measures, data integrity, user and access controls, the service agreements, so on and so forth. But it, it's, again, very basic. Most major cloud service providers that we are using, like Microsoft Office 365 and you know Dropbox, uh, they, they will meet this minimum level of mm-hmm. uh, security albeit if you use a business class version using free services, it's a different story. But again, just do your due diligence. Make sure that you're not using some unknown, nameless cloud service provider. And, you know, you, sh- you should be good. It is safe to use the cloud uh, if okay. you take those reasonable precautions. And then let's talk about, so some people um, had kind of a flex thing where they, and I think attorneys often work from home anyway, because they're, if you, especially if you're doing billable hours, you know, you, you're working late at night, but some people had never worked from home before. Mm-hmm. So now they've taken home a device and um, they had internet access and Wi-Fi at their home, but it was like for their TV screening stuff. So now I'm concerned how do I know that my home Wi-Fi is secure? Because I didn't care if people could see what I was watching on Netflix, but now I have client files that I'm working on. Sure. So uh, sort of step one would be to change the password for your modem or router. Uh, A lot of people think that the password they use to log into their Wi-Fi uh, because that's secure, that their modem and router is secure. But the reality is when they ship your modem and router to you, it usually comes with a basic password like admin and password. Um, That's the login. And if you don't change that, then anyone can get into your modem and your router and see your internet and access your your internet traffic. Um, So the step one really would be to change the password on your modem and router and make it something unique to you. And again, something that you will remember. So we're Mm -hmm. going back to that password manager. Don't, you know, just write it down and forget about it. Uh, that's useless. And then you you want to create a network password that's useful. And that's the password that you use to log into your network. So the password you hand out to guests when they come and use your Wi-Fi, that's the network password, which is different again than the admin password on the modem or router. So change your passwords. Then make sure that you have an updated firmware on that modem and router. A lot of times you need to log into the modem and router to access it to do firmware updates. So if you don't know how to do that, contact your internet service provider and they should be able to walk you through those steps. But it doesn't always automatically update. Surprise! So a lot Mm -hmm. of times you'll find that you have outdated firmware or you'll find if you call your internet service provider that you actually have a very old modem uh, and and they they don't automatically send you an updated one or a new one. So Stay in contact with your internet service provider. Be that person. You know, make sure you have the latest and greatest uh, that is available to you. Um, the next one I talked about. I kind of mentioned this a second ago, but a guest network. This is best if you have more than one person in your home, 
and essentially what it is, it creates a separate access point for guests with a separate password. It's essentially completely separate from your Wi-Fi network. And most uh, routers are able to do this in this day and age. So it makes it easy. You you know, you can do the whole Pinterest thing and put your guest Wi-Fi in your guest room. And, I you know, exactly. Um, so, again, it just puts a, an additional barrier between your information, your Internet traffic, your confidential client information, and any guests that may come into the house. You don't want to be that person that doesn't give away your Wi-Fi password, although that would be best if you're really concerned. Mm -hmm. Just don't let people get on your Wi-Fi network, on your home Wi-Fi network. But if you do, or if you have kids who have friends over all the time, then again, just create a guest network that Keep it adds that separate barrier. Okay. And you, when we were talking about the cloud, you mentioned free services. So is it permissible, and I know a lot of attorneys do this, to use the free version of Gmail or Dropbox, those kind of things? <sighs> okay. So this is a fantastic question because we see this all the time. Attorneys mm -hmm. very commonly use Gmail, Yahoo, AOL uh, for their business email. And technically, is it permissible? Yes. Uh, should you use these services to do business? Our recommendation is no, you shouldn't. Uh, and the reason being is that the way free services handle your data is different than how paid services handle your data. The privacy policies are different. The terms of service and user agreements are different. And essentially, they have access to your data. It doesn't mean that they're reading it word for word, but they have access to uh, data for purposes of marketing and product development and so on and so forth. And just things that they shouldn't be reading uh, when it comes to your confidential client information. Uh, if you want to use it for personal, that's fine. By all means, use your free Gmail, AOL, or Yahoo account to sign up for that 10% discount on an online website. Um, but don't use them to do business simply because, again, the way that the data is handled is different. So we're always going to recommend that members go with paid business cloud, class cloud service subscriptions over any free service op offerings because the reality is free products uh, meet your needs, but they often come at a high cost, which is access to your data. Um, so uh, our, our producer here is putting up one of my favorites, ProtonMail. If you want a free uh, uh, email service that is also secure and encrypted, ProtonMail is great. Uh, I have ProtonMail even for my own personal stuff. And and again, there there are a few of those that are available to you. And there are, there are ways in which you, you can still have uh, low-cost cloud services that are still safe and secure. And, and we have an article on this that goes into a bit more detail that we'll link below. But again, uh, avoid using free, free cloud services. And that includes also things like Dropbox or, or Box or any cloud storage service provider. Uh, pay the $5 a month. Uh, you know, you should be able to make that back, uh, you know, with your billing and whatnot. And, and your clients will appreciate that you're taking that extra level and extra step to keep their data secure. And that's that's ultimately how I see it. It's not just your email that you need to be concerned about. It's your client's email and your client's personal and confidential information. So don't do it for you. Do it for your client at the very least. So yes, it's permissible. No, you shouldn't use it. Okay. And then something you said before, because um, I have had the outdated modem before where I contacted Comcast and, <laughs> and I'd been paying every month and found out that if I had spoken up, they would have given me a really nice new one for the exact same amount that I was mm -hmm. paying anyway. But uh, 
fix that. The other thing is I always, when I get one of those pop-ups saying that it's time to have an update on my computer, I have seen unnamed attorneys because they're busy, very, very busy. They have the best of intentions and they'll say update later, update later. Talk about what happens if you are not doing those updates on your devices. Right. So a lot of people think that these updates are, you know, just an improvement on the user interface that you get a new flashy button or whatnot. And the reality is most updates, even when they're not major updates, are security patches and ways to essentially improve the software and keep it more secure. So, you know, you in order to take reasonable precautions to keep client data safe uh, as required by our rules and opinions, uh, you should be doing regular updates on all of your devices, manufacturer updates. I'm not telling you to go in there and finagle with it yourself, uh, but anytime a pop-up comes up from Windows or your Mac, or again, if you're able to log into your modem or router and it tells you you have a firmware update available, do the update. Because again, a lot of these come with security patches. It's it's not just about the user interface. It's not just about a new, you know, software platform that makes, you know, your Safari or your Microsoft Edge look nicer. No, it, it's it's for security reasons that we constantly are telling people update your devices and make sure everything is up to date. And if you're not getting any prompting to ever have an update, I've I've had callers where I, after asking a few questions, I realized they were using completely unsupported versions of the right. software. So right. what's happening if you're if you're in that situation? So we have people that uh, unfortunately are still using like Windows XP or Windows <laughs> Vista. Vista. Um, and and the reality of the situation is that they call us wanting you know. A solution of some sort. And the only viable solution at that point is that you get the most up-to-date software because even the software providers themselves are no longer offering support uh, for these software platforms. So you're not going to get those automatic updates because they're just not being pushed. They're not available. There are no updates to be made. That is and a there, defunct. There's compati- yeah, compatibility yeah. issues or like you go into a exactly. website and it doesn't support your browser and exactly. they call us and they're like, this this website is broken and we have exactly. to explain that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and no one ever wants to hear that you have to spend more money and upgrade your yeah. software or your hardware. But that's just the reality of the situation. If you want to maintain that data secure and ensure that you are doing everything possible on your end to maintain client confidential information secure, then you must have the most up-to-date software and make sure that it's still being supported. Because again, you don't have to have uh, Windows 11, which is not out yet, I don't think. Uh, but it, you know, you should have something that it's still being supported by Microsoft. Uh, so that would be, I think in this case, Windows 10, Windows 8, um, and a few before. But again, if you're still running XP or Vista and you're not no longer getting updates, well, our recommendation, again, is going to be that you simply have to invest in new software mm-hmm. uh, or hardware. Yeah, for if you're, so many reasons, but exactly. the big one being the security. The, we're, 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 it would be irresponsible of us to offer you any kind of workaround. We we couldn't do that. That's just if, if Microsoft itself is not offering you a solution, we can't offer you a solution. No, you're out in the Wild West on your own at that point. So Exactly. Okay. Here's another thing that's popped up so much since the pandemic started. Before, attorneys would draft their pleadings and then they would pass it off to an assistant and they would take care of e-filing it. And so for the first time, whether they're, you know, they have reduced staff or they're like just working weird hours, whatever it is, they're home. 
and they've not done their own e-filing before. I want to make something, one thing clear. The Florida Bar does not control or have anything to do with the e-filing portal. That is the court. So I want to make that clear because we get that call all the time. But I want to say we can help you. So Carla, if someone needs a little help with e-filing or tutorials, what what can we offer them? Right. So again, just to reiterate, because it bears repeating a million times, uh, (laughs) the Florida Bar does not administer or in any way have access to your filings. We can't, you know, troubleshoot a filing issue you're having in the moment. That is something you need to contact the portal directly. And they have, you know, information on their website to contact them directly. So, mm-hmm. you know, I we wish it were different, but we can't see the portal. So if I could help you, I would, but I can't. That's just the reality of the situation. Um, as far as resources to help with the e-filing process, the first thing I would recommend uh, members do is go to the e-filing portal itself, myflcourtaccess.com, and go to their help section. You'll see a ton of FAQs, training videos, training manuals, so much more. It literally any question under the sun, it's going to be on one of those training manuals. Are they lengthy? Yes. But, you know, use a document search function. We have had um, the woman on that's over that and she's right. e- excellent. And right. she is so um, real I'll forward thinking that about podcast. training. Yeah. Oh, okay, good. Because the other thing is, when as soon as you say they're lengthy, I, I don't want people to be like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> the cool thing about the tutorials and some of the help guides are if you have one question, there's a little short thing to just get you to right. the part that you need where you it, don't it, have to wait through they're, a giant. They're lengthy. And, and I say yeah. that because people will open the document and see that it's, you know, any number of pages and immediately close it and pick up the phone and call us when the reality is uh, there are a ton of shortcuts in the document. It's properly linked. You can jump to the question you're looking for immediately. And if you really are, well designed, help. right? It's it's really really useful. Um, and if not, you can just do a you know Control F and search the document for the specific word you want, and there it is. Uh, that's the shortcut. So you know that's where I would go simply because they are up to date. Every time there is an update to the portal, they update that that, that training and that guidance uh, to make sure that. Everything is in line uh, with how things are in the moment. That said, okay. What if I don't want to learn all of that? Is there sure. something else? Okay. Sure. Uh, we do have a page on our website, which again is legalfield.com, um, and the title is "E-Filing Resources for Florida Lawyers." On there, we kind of summarize everything. We we com- we put everything co- compactly and have sort of quick links for attorneys to go to. And again, I'll link to that website below. But it is a quick and easy way to figure out where you need to go and what you need to do. Uh, beyond that, again, we can't help you with your actual filing. <laughs> so we, we can... do have, I do want to mention that there is a member benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means that it's, you can get it at a reduced cost as a Florida Bar member, but there is a member benefit called eFile Made Easy. So if you're on the Florida Bar website and hover over members, you're going to see benefits and discounts. So eFile Made Easy takes your document and like just makes it happen for you because I, we're going to talk a little bit about metadata and, you know, getting your document document set up correctly. But eFile Made Easy is, um, I know that the CEO used to be a member of the Florida Bar Technology Committee. So I think he really understands a lot of those things. So check that out. If you want sort of a click and go option, eFile Made Easy is fantastic because it even removes metadata. Um, So so it it facilitates that. And again, it, it makes it easy to 
file documents, sort of a drag and drop situation. So that is an option. There's also another member benefit. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it goes through, it's like a training module and it goes through the how-tos if you want to DIY the e-filing process. Um, It teaches you how to e-file in its most sort of basic form. E-file made easy essentially does it for you. So that's the difference between the two services and we'll link to them below. Okay, so now I'm doing my own e-filing, but there was a a big shift with the clerks at the courts. So now the attorneys are responsible for redacting confidential information. And I think we've all seen those news stories where there were filings and then they didn't redact properly. And so the other side was able to see everything either because they could just click and delete Mm -hmm. the digital redaction or they like (laughs) just drew a line over it and and scanned it and they could see it because it didn't as soon as it printed out, you could see the words again. Where can I get, what do I do if I want to do redaction properly? What are the options? Right. So there's so many things wrong with how <laughs> redaction is done uh, by many, mm-hmm. by many. And, and even by over. like federal courts, you see this happening. Oh, in big yes. Cases. It's made headlines. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So let's talk about what not to do. You don't want to highlight or black out the content with the highlighting tool. You don't want to white the font. You don't want, you know, that essentially allows someone to copy paste the text, change the color and the highlighting and boom, and, they and see your text. Immediately. Right. They, they, that's not real redaction. Uh, so just because you can't see it in the moment doesn't mean you've actually redacted something. Properly redacting information makes it so that that information is redacted, meaning no matter how much of copy pasting I, I try and do, I cannot remove the redaction. And there are proper tools to use this for, for purposes of this podcast and by way of example, because it is a popular uh, software program, uh, I'm going to talk about Adobe Acrobat Pro. Okay. Uh, so if, if you don't have something similar to Adobe that has advanced uh, PDF editing tools, then you should consider getting it if you are going to be redacting documents because doing it in Word with just the highlight tool is not how you redact. And please don't do it. You're better off printing it and grabbing a Sharpie. Uh, but you kind of, you have to like Sharpie both sides of the paper. I yes. Think I'm, I'm not, I'm not advocating <laughs> for the Sharpie method by any means, but that's a lot as, of work. Uh, as far as for security reasons, it, the Sharpie method is safer than simply blacking <laughs> out with, with the word highlight tool or whiting out mm-hmm. the font. So let's mm-hmm. not do that. Uh, Adobe Acrobat Pro does have a specific tool uh, for redaction. It's a redaction button, I guess. Uh, So you click the tools, then you click protection, mark for redaction. If you don't see the protection panel, you choose view, then click tools, then protection. From there, you highlight the text you want to redact, then you click apply redactions, then you click OK. Boom. From that point on, once you've saved the document, once you send the document, anyone that tries to click on that redaction cannot click on it. So again, just whatever software program you do use, do your homework, make sure you're properly redacting the information needing to be redacted. Um, And I have to, Adobe Pro is such an amazing product. So it's not just for redaction. So if you don't have that, you should get that. If you're dealing with documents, I just, I love that. And there are other professional alternative software programs that have similar tools. Whatever you're using, make sure it has the proper tools. Uh, The likelihood is if you're downloading it for free, uh, it's not going to be a full-fledged program. But there are so many out there that I don't want to uh, make any, you know, okay. claims. But right. again, do it. 
Okay, so one of the words we've already tossed around, and I know it gets tossed around in attorneys, and if you are not techie, you just kind of nod. What is metadata? How do I remove it from documents before filing or sharing them with other parties? What is it? Because I don't see it. So metadata is information that it's generated by the computer, by the computer operating system or by a particular application that is associated with a file. So if it's a Word document, then Word is creating metadata. And it's it's just pretty much electronic information about that file. And usually, as by way of example, it includes names like the author name and certain comments and, and other things that are included in the summary tab. Uh, so document statistics and, and where this could be problematic, again, is not necessarily the author name, but more the comments. Uh, if you have a lot of comments in your documents that may reveal uh, a strategy or confidential information and you don't scrub that data, it may be available to other parties. Uh, so you want to scrub the met metadata, and the best way to do that is right in the Word file itself, in the Word document itself. Uh, we'll include a quick video, which also, by the way, the e-filing portal has uh, for our users. Uh, but it's a quick video. It's just a few easy steps. You go into the Word file menu, you inspect the document, you remove all document properties and personal information, and then you convert to PDF. And then there's so much it. evidence there, so many layers that people exactly. don't realize. Exactly. It's so much, so much information, but so easy to remove. So again, we'll include the video, but Great. remove your metadata from every file. To me, it's become such a habit. Even when there's no confidential information on there, I remove metadata. So if, if you just make a habit of it, it's simple, easy. We'll include a link below. Okay. So you and I have gotten the call a dozen times about the 2,000 boxes in a storage facility that nobody remembered. Um, <laughs> there, there's so many hard copy files out there. And so everyone has yes. good intentions. But okay, so I've identified what I can have shredded, but I still have these files that I need to keep because of the, you know, the retention rules. How do I digitize these hard files that I still have to keep for a little while longer? Yeah, like you said, we get a lot of questions about this and everyone's looking for like a one and done quick answer, kind of shortcut. And, and there really is no shortcut. Uh, you are going to need to take a paper document and digitize it. Uh, usually that's through scanning, unless you want to reproduce the paper document manually. That's ridiculous, but hey, to each their own. So you either do the scanning yourself or you pay to have it done. If you opt for the DIY option and you don't have sort of those large multifunction floor models in your office, you want to get a dedicated scanner with multi-page scanning and robust optical character recognition. OCR is mm -hmm. usually how you'll see yes, it. Yes, you can search those later on. Exactly. Big difference. OCR essentially makes it searchable. So whatever you document you scan, you can search. Otherwise, it's just a static image and it's kind of useless unless you mm -hmm. open it and read it's, through the whole thing. It's a thing. pretty picture that you'll have to read every word of to actually exactly. look through. And the alternative is to hire someone to digitize your files. Uh, if you can hire staff, uh, temp staff to do this for you, or you can contact a records management company and they often uh, offer scanning and conversion services. And, and honestly, it just depends on how much you want to spend, how much time you want to spend. Right. And but you want to make sure you're doing it properly. So if you're not sure, it's exactly. better to have those companies will come in with a, a fleet of scanners and people and it'll be. Shoo, shoo, shoo. Right. Yeah, so it's kind of your budget. 
Right. Okay. What do the rules say about electronic file retention? Common question. Do I still need to have a file destruction policy for digital files? This is a point I make a lot with people that surprises them. Sure, sure. So uh, first and foremost, listeners should review the ethics informational packet on closed files, which we will link below along with the other resources. Uh, the closed files packet includes relevant rules, opinions, best practice, and even a model file retention policy. Um, that said, requirements for digital files are the same as they are for paper files. We get that call all the time. I know what the requirements are for paper files, but what are they for digital files? The retention requirements are the same, and the rules make no distinction. So it's six years for trust accounting records, statements of insured clients' rights, and contingent fee contracts and closing statements and contingent fee cases. Beyond that, the attorneys have to make their own determination as to what must be kept and what can be disposed of. Uh, rule of thumb, any original documents or any property belonging to the client should be returned to the client. You can't just unilaterally choose to destroy those without contacting the client first. Everything else, you kind of have to go through a calling process and the informational packet on closed files will give you all these guidelines and best practices. Um, but essentially, you handle digital files just as you do paper files. So to your question of whether you ha should have a destruction policy, yes, you should. Uh, you should implement a file retention policy for digital records because even more so because they're easier to amass than uh that's right. Paper so files. just well, and I want to say, just having the policy is only the tiny baby step. You got to right. actually destroy those old right. digital records because if you have a breach, you didn't just release all your current files. Everything you ever saved in those digital files has now been compromised. So when you are talking about having to notify, like a breach notification, you're not just calling your current clients. So get rid of those. So like all of those digital files, you might as well have had a warehouse of. 20,000 boxes if you didn't get rid of them according right. to your policy. Just because digital yeah. files don't take up space uh, doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a record retention policy. And, you know, storage space is on a device is still finite. So you may still get to the point where you run out. I mean, it's not uncommon for us to get calls of members saying, oh, we have 50 years worth of records. My question at that point is, why? <laughs> you, yeah, you should avoid yeah. that at all costs. And, and if even if you have cloud storage, while theoretically infinite, you have to pay for it. Uh, so right. And that can get expensive, just like that warehouse that you used to lease. Right. So, right. so yes, there should be a, a retention policy, even for digital files. Okay. Let's jump to the next topic. You hear this and in, in, you see it in the headlines. I don't think everyone grasps what it is. What's a phishing attack? So phishing, spelled P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G, has sort of a similar meaning to the, you know, standard spelling and definition of phishing. Uh, it essentially fishes for your information, and it refers to an attack that uses email or messaging service anywhere where you can have a link or an attachment, and it essentially tricks you into uh, clicking that link or opening that attachment in order to gain access to your device. The goal, the end goal being either to harvest your information or to uh, essentially put a virus uh, into your computer and, you know, it may lead to other forms of uh, digital attacks. So, uh, you know, ransomware, for example, could come uh, through 
a phishing email. You could click the wrong link or open the wrong attachment, and suddenly you've given access to your data to these hackers, and they now take it ransom, and it becomes a whole mess. I'm sure we've all read about it on uh, the in headlines and, and on the internet and in the news. Uh, but phishing is sort of that initial point of contact where they try and first gain access in, into your data, and usually the most common is through email and and they they're pretty complex. I mean they they make they make the emails look like they come from legitimate sources or from people that or you, even from your coworkers. Exactly, from people that you're mm-hmm. constantly in communication with uh, and and you know hackers nowadays are quite sophisticated. So to to think that because you're a small law firm or a solo practitioner and that's not going to happen to you because who wants your information anyway? You'd be surprised because maybe it's not your information that they're going after, but through you, they gain access to your clients. And if you have, unfortunately, elderly people fall victim to these scams more often than not, if you have elderly clients and they then receive a phishing email and fall victim to it, then it can become a problem. So that's why it's important for attorneys. Uh, if Even if you don't think your own information is valuable or important, uh, think about your clients. So that, that's what phishing is, essentially. It's a, it's a way to gain access into your data. Essentially, they're phishing for information. That's a good way to think about it. And so we, we, we've got phishing attacks that can lead to ransomware. And then the, the one that we talked about before, data breach. How can I prepare myself and my staff to not fall victim to this? Because I think a lot of people have, I have a strict policy where I literally will yell down the hall if there's something weird. If Jonathan, our director, has sent me a document, I will say, did you, like, I wasn't expecting this. So um, is this from you before I click on it? And he's like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> or no, because that's happened. So, or if I get something from my bank or a company where I ordered a package and it says, oh, track this to see. A lot of times I'll just not click the email and go to the actual website because I know that I've typed it incorrectly and check it that way. But what are the other, if, if you have a high volume of, of emails coming into your um, law firm for your staff, how can you test them? How can you uh, train them? What do you do? This is sort of a multi-level question, and, and it, it there's no one thing that needs to be done in order to protect yourself from a data breach. And a data breach could be pretty much anything, any unauthorized access of confidential or personal information. And uh, personal information is defined as an individual's name or initial and last name in combination with one or more of the following data elements. So that would be a social security number, a driver's license or identification card number, passport number, military identification number, or other similar number issued on a government document used to verify identity, a financial account account number, credit or debit card number, you know, medical history, medical or physical conditions, health insurance policy numbers. So if any information is authorized, is accessed by an unauthorized user, that's considered a data breach. So even if a former employee, for example, still has access to your systems and they access that information, that technically is a data breach. Uh, So step one, make sure you have administrator access to your staff's accounts. And that includes their laptops, their emails, their every cloud service provider. You, you need to be the administrator of that information. That way, if they are terminated or if the relationship is terminated, whether you fire them or whether they leave on their own accord, you can immediately cease uh, their access to your information. So that's step 
on other and ways. You, pre- you kind of need a checklist because like I think a lot of times people forget that even though they handed in their laptop, they were accessing the firm information or email on their phone. Right. Um, so if you don't go in and remember all those accounts that you've got to change the passwords or kill off the account, like maybe, exactly. you know. If you if you kill off the account at the administrator level, even if they have, let's say, the Outlook application on their phones, that account is no longer available and they can't access it uh, through their phone. So it's important, again, to make sure you have administrator access as the firm admin or as the managing partner or as the, the boss, whoever is at the highest levels uh, you know, of your IT department, whatever it may be. Uh, you have administrator access so that you can cut off access to staff because unfortunately, a lot of breaches we see uh, come are their inside jobs. They come from staff. Uh, so you want to make sure that you have access to everything that your staff does. Uh, two is best practices, again, policies. If you are living alone, you should still have passwords on your laptops, you should still make sure that encryption is enabled. And, you know, it's they're basic things, basic, basic things that need to be done. And actually, as you mentioned earlier, the data breach notification laws in Florida, the Florida Information Protection Act, excludes information that is encrypted, secured, or modified by any other method or technology that removes elements that personally identify an individual or that otherwise renders the information unusable. So again, encryption is key, making sure you have administrator access and making sure you have updated software and firmware, you know, updated hardware. If you're still using a computer that's 15 years old, it's probably time for a new one. Same thing. If you're using Windows XP or Windows Vista, you don't likely have the same level of security as someone that has the most updated software. So it, it's a multi-layered sort of cybersecurity to-do that, that again, it's easy to set up. It, if you go on our website, you can find any number of resources on how to stay safe across the board. And that's one of them. That's how you prevent a data breach. And sometimes it's not even up to you. Sometimes it's your service provider. Uh, so the best thing you can do is to maintain that data encrypted. Make sure you have a reliable service provider. Make sure you've done your due diligence as required by the rules and opinions. And, you know, at that point, you've taken those reasonable precautions. Uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll go over that in more detail in the links that we include uh, with resources and whatnot. But take your cybersecurity okay. steps seriously. Should I obtain cybersecurity insurance? This comes up a lot and they're not all created equal. So right. when, when you talk about this, because I've also, because we see these pitches from some of these companies, I like the ones, I'm going to let you answer, but I like the ones that come with the probing, testing, like they'll send out phishing emails to your staff that aren't really going to take down your system, but you're, you can get a report card to see who got duped and clicked and and or they try to hack your website. I love that. So it's like it's white white hat hackers. Is that what you would call it? Yeah. I mean, any hacker really. I mean, if a sophisticated, you know, 15 year old could probably hack into your systems <laughs> if, if they're not safe. Uh, so, you know, any any sometimes it seems so simple uh, that, you know, you wouldn't think it's possible, but it is. So, uh, yes, you should get cybersecurity insurance. No, it's not always included as, under your existing uh, professional liability insurance. So it's important that you contact your insurance provider to discuss this because, again, it's not always included. And if it's not, it's an extra policy that you need to purchase. You should purchase it because 
It covers breach response costs, including employees, credit notification, monitoring service, uh, forensic analysis, PR consultants, cyber extortion, uh, business interruption costs, loss of income, restoration costs, third-party expenses. It covers any number of things that you might not realize may arise Add as up. a result. Really gets expensive. Yeah. Right. It, it adds up. And, and these things happen just because of a data breach. So it's not just a data breach. It's it's a thing. I mean, it, it can become a nightmare. You can get sued. I mean, it, you never know. Uh, so yes, you should contact your insurance service provider, your insurance provider, find out if it's covered under your existing policy. If not, uh, definitely get co- cybersecurity uh, coverage. And like Christine said, uh, try and find a provider or ask your insurance provider, because sometimes they work with third parties, that can perform an assessment, uh, not just on your systems, but on you and your staff. So like Christine said, they'll send emails, they'll they'll test your staff. I mean, that, that's a, the simplest way to put it. And, and then they'll provide you with the results of that assessment. And it may be that that affects your uh, premium, but at any rate, it needs to be done if your staff, if you and your staff uh, do, are not following. You the can also have that done outside your insurance. Yeah, exactly. I think that if exactly. you're, as soon as you say affects your, I'm like, hmm, maybe, maybe get a third party to do it. <laughs> well, it they'll and offer it, it additional always, training at that point. Exactly. Like if you have a staff member that just is like real busy and they're like, oh my gosh, I clicked exactly. on it. No, it was me. But, but the they, cost, they, to yeah. be fair, the cost does not compare to the cost of what could happen should it be a real life situation. So again, it's always worth it, contact your insurance service provider because they will be able to guide you on what to do next. And if they don't have any recommendations, there is a Florida Bar member yes. benefit. So we'll put that up too. Yes. Okay. Uh, one, one of our member benefits is an insurance company and they do offer cyber liability and data breach insurance. And I understand it's a good one from what I have yes. when I saw that um, demoed. Okay. Why should I get totally different topic? Why should I get practice management software? How do I know which one to choose? Like people are just like, just tell me what to do. But we have some good recommendations. We're not going to steer you towards one, but why should I get it? What are the features that are going to make my life easier? Right. So the biggest is timekeeping and billing. Uh, A lot of times we have people call us saying, well, I don't know how much time I spend on this. And I'm not billing enough. I just had someone recently call me telling me that, you know, they they need to make more money. They they they're looking to make more money. And my first question to them is, well, uh, how what are your billing practices? And they're like, well, I, I don't actually bill. I do flat fee services. I, I don't keep track of my time. And m- my first reaction again is why? Because you don't know if you're billing enough or if you're underbilling or overbilling if you don't keep track of your time. So practice management software does your time tracking. Some of them will have easy, quick timers. So you, th- you're, you when people think of timekeeping, they think that they're going to have to spend this inordinate amount of time uh, remembering each different matter they're working on and bouncing for, and then they forget and they don't do it. These practice management software programs often have quick little timers that you don't have to input too much information. You just start the timer, stop the timer, move on to a next topic, start the timer, stop the timer. And when you have time, you sit down and add in more details and then it prepares the bill for you and then it sends out the bill. And then you can even collect payment 
through a link on that bill. It also keeps helps you with conflict checking. So you are able to do client uh, and matter management right within the system. System uh, You have task uh, management within the system. You have calendaring within the system. Some of them even include court deadlines already built in. So there's any number of features that come all packed into one place. And that's really the sort of kicker, the the end-all, be-all, and, and why we always tell people, use practice management software because everything you need is all in one place. And as so far as- So you're not entering, yeah, you're not exactly. entering that same information over and over again or forgetting exactly. it in some places. Exactly. And we didn't even go into the accounting and the trust accounting. Exactly, exactly. Secure portal. So, so if you want to if you want to talk about that, call us and we'll talk about it. But everybody, I don't care if you're a solo- It doesn't um, matter. And you don't have any staff, get yourself some practice management software because it's going to it's gonna save you so much time and your time is the- if, if you so do the gonna, math, mm-hmm. a lot of people gawk at the monthly pricing. And if you do the math, you will recover that tenfold because you are now suddenly capturing so much time that previously went unbilled. Uh, so that's one of sort of the easiest ways to make sure that you are billing more, billing better, that you're not over or under billing, and that you keep track of absolutely everything in one place. Yeah, and it's less than you think. Some start yes. at thirty-five per user per month, yeah. maybe up to ninety-nine per user per month. No contracts, free trial because you're a Florida Bar member. So take a look at that. Yes. Okay. I say I have practice management software and I'm saving my documents in it. That's another nice feature. If I'm creating documents and I'm timing myself, but they're also there, so then my assistant can work on it because we're all in the same program and she's at home and it's working so great. He or she. Do I need to still get because we have these other products and member benefits? When do I need a, my own cloud storage provider outside of that? Do I do I need to have another backup of my files locally? So I'm paranoid of losing everything. So sure. um, my, my practice management software is probably in the cloud, but what, what should I be doing? Sure. Well, it, it depends. So that, again, there's no one size fits all for any one firm. Everyone works differently. Everyone has different workflows. That being said, some practice management software programs come with very sophisticated document management uh, infrastructure, and you are certainly able to work and save everything within the practice management software program. More often than not, you'll find that they can connect to third-party cloud storage providers. So the major ones are Office 365, uh, the Google Workspace, uh, the other ones being Dropbox. So they'll, they'll all connect to those. Now, uh, there's a difference. You mentioned something about backup. There, There's a difference between Cloud Sync and True Backup. So Cloud Sync essentially syncs this file across all devices. And if you delete the file in one place, it's deleted everywhere. So it's sort of a quasi-backup and some people use it as such, but it's not a true backup in the sense that you cannot uh, restore a file that's, you know, from last month. You can't restore your system as it was a month ago. If something were to happen, if your computer were to crash and burn, you can't suddenly restore uh, from a previous version when you have cloud sync. A cloud sync is, again, different from backup, though you can use it as a somewhat of a backup, but it's important to note that if you delete something somewhere or make a change or in any way alter a file in one place, that same deletion or alteration uh, is synced across all devices or anywhere where you can access that file. Uh, so do you still need a cloud service, cloud storage provider with practice management software? Uh, yes and no. 
I would say yes, simply because having that redundancy and having that data in multiple places is always going to be beneficial. And again, you can usually link to whatever cloud service provider you have directly into your practice management software program. So if, let's say, you do need to email that document through the client portal uh, in the practice management software program, you can quickly access the document because it's linked with the practice management uh, software program. But it's entirely up to you and you have to make the assessment of what your workflows are, whether you want to work with documents within the practice management software program or whether it benefits you to have them separate. It's entirely up to you. I would say take advantage of these integrations, leverage you know these workflows as much as possible and where possible. And if it's available, yes, definitely integrate or link your cloud service, uh, cloud storage service provider to your practice management software program, but it's not necessary and you don't need to have it. Okay. And I don't want to go too deep down the rabbit hole, but I have read and reading some of these ransomware situations where um, somebody, they got the notification that they'd encrypted their files or being held hostage. And some people, because of the way their setup was said, ha ha, you don't have this copy of every single file because we had it over here. So mm-hmm. we're not going down. We were going to be able to keep doing business because we have everything backed up somewhere else. So, Right. So a proper backup, like I mentioned earlier, backs everything up as of a certain date as it stands. So if I back my computer up right now, two weeks from now, I am uh, hit by a, I fall victim to a ransomware attack. And I can quite literally restore my systems to the very last backup. In this case, I'll say it's right now. And the ransomware is ultimately null. You know, I can begin operating, begin assessing the situation without having any very little business interruption. So I can still serve my clients. Of course, you still have to deal with the ransomware aspect. You still have to make sure that all your systems are secure and patched and whatnot. We go through all the forensics of that. But you can immediately start up uh, where you left off with a true backup. If you only have a sync and they steal your data, you're kind of out of luck. Right. Okay. So, and so the backup is like backup. a moment in time. So a the more frequently time. you back up, that's the time machine that's going to take you. That's where you're going to be. Right. So maybe, yeah, but some people, you know, it. oh, we didn't do it for a month. So now we're, everything is lost for the past month. So consider that when you're getting sure. everything set up. Okay. Um, how can I encrypt emails? I know sometimes it's built in. What should I be doing? What are my options? Just right. without going too uh, deep. Without going too deep, check with your email service provider. Again, it's always a matter of doing your due diligence and making sure that you are using the software correctly. That is your responsibility. So check with your service provider. See if it's something that's available through them. If not, there are third-party services that allow you to send and receive encrypted messages. Uh, We have one as a member benefit called RMail that helps you uh, encrypt your messages, even if you are using uh, Office 365 Outlook or Gmail or any of those sort of popular uh, cloud email services, they are still able to encrypt those emails. But again, without going into too much detail, make sure you contact your, your provider, find out if it's something that's available through them. There's any number, Google is your best friend. There are any number of support pages for major uh, email service providers that can walk you through how to enable or disable encryption. In short, you should encrypt emails if you are sending anything 
with confidential information, so client names, social security numbers, account numbers, so on and so forth, you you should be sending that via encrypted message because, again, it's just an added layer of security. Uh, you know, that's not to say that people should cease using email altogether, but you should encrypt confidential information just as you would anywhere else. Email is no different. Okay. And so a lot of practices are emailing attachments. But at some point, based on uh, the area of you practice of your practice, you know, these may be very large files. So you don't want that because it's going to get clunky. It won't go through or it'll take forever. Um, so what are my options if I have these big files? What are my options for securing those, sharing them securely? Sure. So a lot of us, and, and again, there's any number of service providers that we can talk about, but the common ones are Office 365. You have OneDrive, you have Google Workspace, uh, Google Drive, you have uh, Box, uh, Dropbox, you have Box, you have any number of providers. Step one is make sure you're using a paid business class service. So avoid using the free service because that kind of defeats the purpose of securely sharing files. Uh, so if you want to securely share a file, make sure you're using paid business class service. And then the, the beauty of these uh, programs is that they allow you to share your files and set certain security settings. So some of them, uh, depending on what the settings are, you can set specific email addresses that can view those files. If you use Office 365, you're probably familiar with the settings that say anyone with a link can view, anyone with a link can edit, anyone with a link can download, you can disable forwarding, so on and so forth. So it goes back to knowing the software you're using, making sure you're enabling those security settings for individual folders and files uh, before you send them out. You can even set uh, limits to how often if it can be downloaded, you can set limits to, you know, when they can and cannot access. So after a certain date, that file is no longer available uh, to the recipient. So just make sure you understand the program and that you're enabling as many security settings as possible. Right. Because like if you're doing family law and the other side's hacked their estranged spouse's email, you don't want all that stuff sitting out there, which is why my one of my favorite things about practice management software are the built-in secure client portals. Uh, portals. Love yes. the portals because say, if you're doing family law, and this is applies to a lot of areas, but I always like this example. You need them to fill out all these financial uh, response forms and there's so much stuff. And so it's like you're giving them homework. So if you can push that securely through the portal, it pops up that they have assignments, they log into the portal, they fill it out, and it's never out there for anyone to get. It's in your portal. It comes right back to you when they've done all that. So look at that in the practice management software features. Um, next question. What is the current state of e-signatures and remote notarization? Do bar rules allow both? This has come up a lot with the pandemic. So where it are we has. So I will, as always, for similar this matter and similar matters, defer to the ethics department because they are the ones that interpret the rules. And, and they put out some guidance uh, some time ago when the, early on in the pandemic titled Ethics During COVID-19, where they specifically discuss common topics that have come up with the new remote work situation and then conducting uh, hearings and whatnot remotely. Those topics, of, of course, include remote signatures and remote notarizations. So I will quote them as to remote signatures. 
And they say another common question to the ethics hotline currently is whether lawyers and clients can use electronic signatures. The preamble to Chapter 4, Rules of Professional Conduct, defines writing or written as a tangible or electronic record of communication or representation, including handwriting, typewriting, printing, photo stating, photography, audio or video recording, and electronic communications. A signed writing includes an electronic sound symbol or process attached or logically associated with a writing and executed or adopted by a person with the intent to sign the writing. Therefore, for purposes of the rules of professional conduct, it is permissible to have electronic signatures for documents such as fee agreements, closing statements, conflict of interest waivers, and any other documents required to be in writing or signed under the rules of professional conduct. So as you will notice, uh, they do not comment as to remote signatures for other types of documents not required under the rules of professional conduct. So a common question we have is, can we use like DocuSign Yes, you can use DocuSign as long as a statute or rule does not require that you have sort of the wet signature on the original document. So do your due diligence. Not all documents are created equal. If you're required to have a wet signature, then that's it. We can't we can't change the law for you. And, and a lot of times we get callers that are aggravated saying, but we're working remotely. Unfortunately, we can't help everyone. We can't change the rules. So I, again, will defer to the ethics department uh, on that topic, but that's what they have to say on that. As for remote notarization, it's a little different. Questions regarding electronic notarization and remote witnesses are legal questions rather than ethical questions. Section 117.021 Florida Statutes defines electronic notarization. The portion of the statute addressing the ability to electronically notarize documents, such as loans or deeds, came into effect January 1, 2020. The portion of the legislation that addresses electronic notarization of estate planning documents is effective July 1, 2020. And there is no exception. There's also an exception, I'm sorry, to the ability to use electronic notarization in cases involving vulnerable adults as defined in Section 415.102 Florida statute. So, again, it's a matter of statute. We are going to be limited as to the guidance. If you contact the ethics department, they're probably going to give you uh, some form of what I just read because, again, this is their guidance and we are not permitted to give legal advice. So if it's a legal question rather than an ethical question, that's the extent of the answer you're going to get. If you want to contact the ethics department, their hotline is 800-235-8619. Again, that number is 800-235-8619. Perfect. Okay. In the pandemic, if you weren't already doing it, you've probably been in a lot of Zoom conferences and there's layers to, in fact, the features have changed during the pandemic since so many people are using it. What can your department do to help me know a little bit more about how to do these video conferences? Do you have any resources? Sure. So number one resource I always tell people when they call us this is going to the support site of the platform you're using. So if you're using Zoom, you go to support.zoom.us. They have any number of how-tos, videos, very easy to follow. Uh, That being said, we do have a video conferencing toolkit that was created by the Standing Committee on Technology that covers multiple platforms, and it goes a little more into detail 
as to how attorneys would use these platforms. And again, that's Those court appearances. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it goes into sort of the more legal specific aspect of video conferencing. Uh, but if you have questions about simply how to use the platform itself, meaning how to use, let's say, a waiting room, or, you know, that for that kind of stuff, I would suggest always going to the platform support uh, pages directly simply because these software platforms, even over the last year, we've seen them change. I mean, almost on a weekly basis, they add new features or they implement new things. So for the most up-to-date information, definitely go there. But we will link the video conference toolkit uh, below. And again, it goes into detail, more legal specific detail. Okay, my last question, it's an oldie but a goodie, will always apply. I need to dispose of some old computers or printers. Where can I find information on wiping all of the stored data on these devices? You are required, there is an opinion, I will link to it below, that essentially discusses sanitization. And what that means is the process that renders access to target data on media infeasible for a given level of effort. In short, you must erase the hard drives and reset factory to factory settings. And yes, even your old printers and copiers have uh, stored information, meaning if you don't properly sanitize them, then whoever gains access to them next, can reprint information. And you don't know, it might be harmless, but more likely than not, if it's in a law firm, it contains confidential client information. So the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, has developed really easy to understand guidelines for media sanitization. And again, we'll link to that below. But the techniques include something like clear, purge, and destroy. And destroy is just that. It's usually through shredding or incineration. And the guidelines even recommend sanitization methods for specific types of storage media devices like hard copy storage, networking devices like your modem or router, mobile devices, office equipment, magnetic media, and and other peripherals. And then there's also FTC uh, guidance that's, again, very easy to read. They have any number of plain language resources for for businesses, and we'll link to those below. But if you don't feel comfortable doing it yourself, you can always hire a company to uh, sanitize and destroy devices that contain storage media. They also recycle the equipment and provide you with a certificate of sanitization at proper disposal, which you can refer to uh, later on if it were ever to come up that, you know, you got rid but of don't some assume, information. Because right. there's, there's been real world instances where somebody was leasing a copier, one of those big ones, they turned it in at the end of their lease. The next law firm leased the same copier and all that stuff. Right. Was Make sure you oversee the process if you're not yeah. doing it yourself. Okay, that was great. It looks like we've reached the end of our program. Thank you for joining us. Carla, where can our listeners find all of these resources that we've mentioned today? Well, we will link to them below. And of course, you can visit LegalFuel.com. You can call us. You can chat with us right from the website. You can fill out a contact form if you have any questions whatsoever on any of the topics we discussed and they're not answered by the links below. Definitely contact us. Great. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. Join us next time for another episode of the Florida Bar's Legal Fuel Podcast, brought to you by the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. I'm Christine Bilbury. And I'm Carla Eckhart. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalFuel.com. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to the Florida Bar's podcast via iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and RSS. Find the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center Legal Fuel on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the Florida Bar. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.